This morning we're going to go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, and, and while you're going there, let me just remind you, we had just had several praises shared. This is why we pray, folks. It's not just something we do as part of our ritualistic practice and worship. We pray because we know God hears us and God will answer prayers. And so we share so that we can pray together, so we can lift those requests before God, and then we can praise God together when he answers those requests. So I think the prayer and the prayer requests are as important as any other part of the service as part of our worship of God. And so we praise the Lord that he does hear us and he answers our prayer, so we can rejoice in that together. Revelation chapter 22 is where we are. We're finishing up this section, and this is a continuation in the first part of chapter 22 of a description of the New Jerusalem, the home, our future home, home of the church, the believers in heaven when we finally get through the millennial kingdom. That's terrible to say it that way. When we finally enjoy the fullness of the millennial kingdom and then transition into the eternal kingdom, Um, and know that this is what we have to look forward to. And so as we look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we're going to conclude John's description of the new creation, the new Jerusalem, this capital city, the temple of the new heavens and new earth. And so far we've seen from John's perspective, remember in chapter 21, he's taken up on a high mountain by the angel. He's shown this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven Toward the earth, it doesn't say it comes down to the earth, but toward the earth. And then John gives us, as he seemingly approaches this city, a description of the things that he sees. And we've seen the outside, the beautiful foundations inscribed with the names of the apostles, the twelve gates of pearl inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, the transparent streets of pure gold, the whole city that's pure gold, and especially... God's glory that shines throughout the whole of it. And that's the centerpiece, is God's glory. And so even though this eternal city is described here, it's beyond anything that we can imagine or or really comprehend. I I think it's going to be, we we try to sit here and get a picture of it, and I try to explain it to you, and John has tried to explain it to us in this vision, but we're not going to really get the full scope of it until we get there, and I think when we finally see it, it's going to be awe-inspiring, and not so much because it's an amazing, grand city, but because it will be where God himself is, and we'll see his glory in its fullness. And so that's what we're reading about here. As we begin chapter 22, um, we see the inside of the city So let's start in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. So verse 1 starts, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light for the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We'll stop there this morning, and let's pray together as we... Uh, prepare to, to look at what God has for us today. 
Lord, we thank you for your word again. We thank you that you've brought us here in worship and praise. We've already experienced the blessings of answered prayer together. We've experienced the joy of worshiping and exalting our Lord together. And so, Lord, now I pray that you would prepare our hearts to rejoice in your word and to be taught by your word together. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit among us. Just help us to understand, to see these promises that you've given us in your word about our future, our hope. And Lord, I pray that you would just do your work now. Lord, I need your help to preach your word, to proclaim the truth. So fill me with your spirit. Give me your strength and your words to speak so that we might hear from you and be challenged by your truth today. And most of all, Lord, we want you to be honored. We want you to be in the center of everything that's said now. And so may you do your work. May you proclaim your word and may you receive all the honor and glory. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin chapter 22, as I mentioned, John is kind of giving us now a glimpse into the inside. We've already seen the splendor, the, the beauty, the, the enormity of this city, as John has described it for us in chapter 21. And as we embark here in the beginning of chapter 22, John gives us a glimpse of what's inside. J. Vernon McGee sums it up this way. He says, up to this chapter, the new Jerusalem seems to be all mineral and no vegetable. Its appearance is as the dazzling display of a fabulous jewelry store, and we wonder if there's no soft grass to sit on, no green trees to enjoy, no water to drink or food to eat. However, here in chapter 22 are introduced the elements which add a rich softness to this city of elaborate beauty, and he's right. We've seen all of the splendor, the majesty, the glory of the outside, the beautiful walls, the foundations of different precious stones, the gates of pearl, the transparent gold reflecting the glory of God. We've seen all that from the outside, but you think about that, and if that was all that we had, you'd wonder, okay, what's the inside like? Now, as beautiful as it is, I don't think I would want to sleep on a bed of solid gold or jewels, all right? I don't think I would want to eat solid gold or jewels or have to live on that, okay? There's, there's comfort. There's other aspects to the city that we haven't seen yet, as beautiful as it is. And here John gives us, in a sense, those comforting things, those life-sustaining, life-giving, and encouraging part of this city, more than just its beauty and splendor. And so what John describes for us here, it's not an exhaustive description. We only have five verses, what's inside. And John lists four things that he sees inside, but these four things, I think, sum up the importance of what this city is all about for us as our future home. And so let's look at John 22 and see how eternity revolves around real life in Christ. This is real life, as we'll see here in these five verses the life that we'll experience in eternity, rather than what we make life out to be on this earth. And so as he starts off, he says, the angel, the angel is still showing him this vision. He said, he showed me a pure river of the water of life. So there's the first thing. John is shown this pure river of the water of life in this city. Now, there are many cities that are built nearby 
uh, great rivers, and in fact, civilization, through the history of civilization, many cities thrived and grew because they were on rivers. Um, we have a perfect example just south of us. Pittsburgh was built at the junction of several rivers, and it thrived and it grew because of those rivers and what they provided. And those rivers provide transportation. They provide drinking water. They provide recreation. They provide a lot of other things that are necessary for life. And we're here, even in Aliquippa. We're just a stone's throw from the Ohio River, okay? A great river in and of itself. Now, I probably wouldn't want to drink out of that river directly, okay? We, we know what goes up and down and what happens along the shores of that, so it's not something that I think I'd desire to do or maybe even go swimming in there on purpose, okay? So that's not the point. The point is the river provides a sustenance to the surrounding city, and here our community depends upon that river, and in a similar manner, the river of life in the New Jerusalem will provide sustenance. But it's not just that it provides transportation or that it provides drinking water. It's called the river of the water of life. Okay, So there's a spiritual aspect to it more than a physical aspect to it. It's more than just another river in the new creation. It's the river of life. And that really is what the new creation is all about, what Real life is going to be in eternity. What you think you're living now is not real life, okay? It's a shadow of the life to come. It's a picture of what we can experience, especially if we're living this life in the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, then we start to understand just a little bit what real life is going to be all about. And so what we see here is this is real life. Real life focuses on the river of life, Now, I want you to remember that John is describing future heavenly things here in terms that he understands from his worldly understanding. He's giving, being given heavenly visions, and we can't understand, nor can John describe perfectly what is going to be there. And so we have, in our terms, a description of what it may look like. Is it a real river of water? I don't know. Okay, it may be. It's a different kind of water, we know that. It may be a different kind of river, but John says it's, it's a river of the water of eternal life. Remember, Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4 that he could give her living water, that if she drank of that water, she would never thirst again. And obviously he was talking about spiritual life, but isn't that really what we're talking about here in the eternal kingdom? It's eternal spiritual life with Jesus Christ, not just an ethereal, you know, that's kind of nice to think about, oh, we're going to be floating around and playing harps. No, it's it's going to be real life, and you'll see we'll experience different activities, and we'll experience work, and we'll have things to do, and we'll worship God very much in the same way even as we worship him together now, but there's a perfection there that we can't even imagine today. It's going to be perfect life and perfect worship, perfect communion, perfect fellowship. And so this perfect life is from Jesus. Remember, as I said, Jesus said, I will give him water 
that if you drink, I will never thirst again. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, the previous chapter, remember Jesus told the apostle John, it is, fin- it is finished, it is done. He was speaking of the new creation, and then he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And so here it is, the fullness, the fulfillment of that promise right here in the eternal kingdom, coming out of the throne of God, and that's what it says, this water comes out of the throne of God clear as crystal. And so there's an aspect of life sustenance in this water or in this river. Now, again, the phrase here that John uses to describe it is clear as crystal, just like everything else in this eternal city. There's no cloudiness, there's no obscurity, there's nothing that can overshadow or block the glory of God. So the glory of God God even is shown through and reflected this clear water, crystal clear water of the river of life. Now, we can't say that about any river on earth, especially the Ohio River here. Okay, I don't know that you could see your hand probably six inches from the surface. But John said this water is perfectly clear, pure. And it's not just about pure water, it's about pure life, real life, the perfect life that Jesus has offered us as the end result of our salvation. This is what we're looking forward to when we talk about having eternal life as a believer today. Okay, how many of you are going to live forever physically? I think all of us are going to die or we're going to go up in the rapture. That, that's our choice. Well, it's not our choice. It's God's choice. But that's our future at this point. This body's going to die or we're going to go up in the rapture. Okay, so that's the end of this life. But this eternal life, this real life that we're talking about here never ends. And this water of life, pure and clean, is symbolic of that perfect, pure life that we will experience in heaven. And it says this water proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So it has God as its source. This river is not the source of life. It flows from the source, from the throne of God himself, and that's where life really is found. It's not in the river. It's in God. Therefore, it's not specifically this river that gives life, but God himself. Again, whether this is actual water or something that John describes as water that looks like a river to him, we don't know until we get there, okay? I can't wait to see it for myself, but I know at this point, even if Christ comes back right now, we're going to have to wait seven years through the tribulation and then a thousand years through the millennial kingdom, then we'll get to see it in person. But I know it's coming. But again, God is the source here. We do know that all life depends on water in this earth. All life, even in the eternal kingdom, will depend on the living water that comes from Jesus Christ because he is life. Without him, there is no light. I'm sorry, there is no light and there is no life. So he is the source of life. And everybody in the eternal kingdom, will already have been granted eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so this river then becomes symbolic of the eternal flowing 
life that we receive from Jesus Christ, but it comes from him. So even though this river is talked about as the water of life, who is at the center of it all? It's God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the provider of this life. Now, while the, river, while the description of the river here is similar in some ways to the Millennial River, which you can read about in Ezekiel, and it flows, that, that Millennial River flows out from under the temple that Christ will sit in on his throne and rule from in his Millennial Kingdom, this river, again, will not have its source in what is below the throne, as the Millennial Kingdom, the Millennial River will, but this river flows from the throne from God himself. And notice, as you look at this description, it says it flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's an interesting phrase. You don't see that phrase except here in Revelation. From the throne of God and Lamb. Not thrones, by the way, not plural, but singular. The throne of God the Father, Jehovah, Yahweh, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, signifying the one God that they are, the one God that we will serve, that we will worship, that we do now worship, and yet two distinct persons named here, God, the Father, and Jesus, the Lamb, the Son. So it's not thrones that they will occupy, it's the throne, as God's manifestation of himself is perfectly complete and fulfilled and exhibited to us in eternity, the Trinity there in existence, all three persons yet all sitting on the throne. So we have this water of life that flows from the throne of God, literally the essence of life to all who inhabit eternity. Secondly, then John describes this tree of life in verse 2. He says, I saw a tree of life. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bared twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here's the second thing John sees inside the city, the tree of life. Now, MacArthur says this tree of life, just like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, was uh, uh, and is a symbol of both eternal life and continual blessing. And we'll see how that works. Remember, if you go back to the beginning of creation. God created the earth. He created dry land. He created the oceans and all the plant life. And then he, and, um, and then he created man and woman and he placed them in the garden. And in the garden, he gave them all manner of plants that they were to tend. That was their work to keep the garden. And he gave them a command. There's one tree that you cannot eat of. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in that garden also was the tree of life. And so here's the question, is this tree of life that we'll have in the eternal kingdom the same one that was in the Garden of Eden? We'll find out when we get there. I don't have that answer, okay, because God doesn't tell us. It may be, I don't know. It may not be. It may be a a completely new tree of life because we don't know what happened to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Maybe God took it up to heaven. He's just waiting there for us to come and enjoy it again in the eternal kingdom. Okay, but we don't know. We'll find out. So, first of all, there's two things I want you to notice about this tree of life. It says this tree is associated with giving life just as the river of life or the river of the water of life was before it. So, again, we're focused on life here. 
It's not just a semblance of life. This is real life. This is where we experience real life. And this tree also represents the life that we have in Jesus Christ. So it's a tree of life. Secondly, um, again, we have to look at its description. And it starts in this verse, in verse two, and it says, in the middle of the street or in the center of the street. Now, the King James Version links this phrase as part of the tree's description, this tree of life. Which, if you read it, as we read in verse two, in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, where was the tree of life. So, it describes this tree, if you take this, the translation of King James, in the midst of the street and on either side of the, the river, is the tree of life. So it's in the middle of the street, but it's also on either side of the river. So how does that work? And, and you try to put that picture together, and you've got some difficulties there. Okay? Um, so you would have to picture, and, and this is the way some people have tried to explain it, this enormous tree that the street goes through, and then maybe the river is in the middle of the street because it, you know, the tree has to be on either side of the river, okay? And so maybe there's a hole in the trunk and the tree, or the, the river and the street both go through the tree. I don't know, okay? That's how it's explained by some theologians and commentators. Um, that's how they explain it. In fact, one, a few commentators actually say, well, this tree of life is actually a row of trees along the sides of the banks of the river, and in Jewish language, in Hebrew, actually there are instances where they have what's called a pluralistic singular, where a stressed single object represents a number of the same thing, okay? Which possibly could be the case here. Unfortunately, it's not clear enough in the language of Scripture to say definitely one way or the other or what exactly this is. We don't know. But we know it's a tree of life. Okay, others will render this phrase... Um, in the middle of a street, as in the middle between the street and the river was this tree of life. And then that gives us another picture that the river's on one side, the, the street is on the other, the tree's in the middle. Okay? That's a possibility as well. And some translations, and if you have a, an ESV or an NESV, uh, I think the NIV as well, will link this first phrase in verse 2, in the middle of the street, actually back to the river in verse 1. So it's not talking about the tree, it's talking about the river, and so it's talking about the river being in the middle of the street, and then the tree is on either side of the river. Again, you'd have to have a picture of something going through the middle of the tree. Um, but remember, when the Bible was written... With, especially with this last translation, when the Bible was given to us by God and the original authors of Scripture wrote this down, God didn't give it to them like this. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit was saying, okay, verse 1, chapter 3, write this. Okay, now let's go to verse 2 and write this. Okay, it was just a flowing narrative. Now, translators have broken this up into chapters and verses for us to try to help us to understand it better. So these chapters and verses are not inspired by God. And so whether this in the middle of the street connects to the tree or whether it connects to the river, we'll find out when we get there, okay? It really doesn't matter. The question or the, the important thing is to remember what are we talking about? We're talking about God's eternal kingdom that he is creating in the new creation 
And there's a tree of life that's important. There's a river of the water of life, and that's important. What they look like and where they are in the, in the perspective of this city, I don't really think matters that much. John's trying to, to give us the description of what he sees, but honestly, we'll find out when we get there. So I don't want to get hung up so much on the details that we miss the truth of what's going on, okay? So my interpretation and how I take it, we'll find out when we get there, all right? That's, how, that's what I'm going to give you. But it gives us some other description, and it says, this tree will bear 12 kinds of fruit with a harvest every month. So it first starts, and it says that this tree will provide fruit. What kinds of fruit? We'll find out when we get there. Okay, I, the, the, <laughs> that's the best I can give you. Theologians will debate this. You know, and I've read probably a dozen commentaries or more in different people's perspectives, and they all have a different opinion. So we don't know. It probably will be fruit that we've never tasted before, heavenly fruit. Jesus said, I make all things new. Maybe it'll look like apples, but it'll be totally different than apples. Maybe it'll look like bananas, but it'll be totally different than bananas. It really doesn't matter. What God will provide in the fruit from this tree will be exactly what we need and exactly what he wants us to have in living a perfect and rejoice, a joyful life in eternity. So it'll be better than anything we ever can experience on this earth. And here's another thing. I know for certain, okay, this fruit, when you pick it, is not going to sit on your counter and go rotten and attract fruit flies. Because there's no death. There's no corruption. There's no dying in, in heaven. And so this fruit will be perfectly good no matter when you want it, no matter when you want to eat it. Now, we're not told here that we're actually going to eat the fruit, but that's what we can assume because there's no other purpose for fruit in the eternal kingdom other than to eat. Now, in our world today, fruit does provide further propagation of those plants, right, in the seeds. But what has to happen in order for that to happen? Death. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat die and go in the ground, you cannot have another plant, okay? There's no death here. So the fruit's not going to be so we can grow more trees of life because this one's going to eventually die. No, this is an eternal tree. So it's got to be for our consumption, for our enjoyment, because we're not going to need to eat in heaven to survive. We have Jesus, who is the life. We have the river of life. We have the tree of life. It's not like we're going to depend on this tree. I think it's more of a blessing that we can rejoice in. And part of that rejoicing is going to be eating of what God provides for us in the perfect life in heaven. Okay? Now, it says every month it will have a harvest. Here's the big question. Every month. I thought eternity, you don't track time. All right. I don't know that there's... I, I know there's going to be no end in, to eternity. It's going to go on forever. Are we going to track time? I don't know. Okay, John may be just giving us a description of earthly terms to help us to understand how this tree is going to bear harvest. Now, remember, I want you to compare what we know about our earthly trees today. How often do they give you a harvest? Once a year, right? Okay, when we lived in Michigan, my favorite apples 
were uh, Honeycrisp, and then they came up with a new one called Sweet Tango. I couldn't wait for the Sweet Tango harvest. We have friends who have orchards, and they grew this fruit, and it was amazing. I never tasted an apple like it. But they only came once a year in late September. And, you know, you could get the ones that were kept in cold storage, and you pull them out in January, and they're kind of like the original. But there's nothing like that fresh, sweet tango apple. I think the idea here is that there will be a continuous supply of fresh fruit whenever you want it. You don't have to wait a year. You don't have to wait at all. You're going to have fruit bearing, being born every month and probably on a regular basis so that it's always available to you. And isn't that how God's blessings are? Especially in eternity without the interference of sin and the curse of sin in our lives, God's blessing is always available to us. And here this fruit represents that in eternity. There's nothing that's going to interfere with us enjoying the blessing of God. There's nothing we have to wait for even. God will provide it right when we want it. And I'm not going to say right when we need it because we don't need it. But it's there for our enjoyment. It's a blessing of God. And so you see why some of the commentators said this, symbol, this tree symbolizes the eternal, continuous blessing of God in our lives. So, I, you know, in looking at this tree, trying to get a picture of it, this is the best I can give you, folks. You know, we'll find out when we get there. There's one more phrase that's associated with the tree. It says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Now, this is an interesting phrase because we think, all right, the healing of the nations. We talked about the nations last week, remember? And I suggested that the, the Greek word ethnos, nations, everywhere else in the New Testament refers to Gentiles. Okay, so it's Gentile nations that we're talking about. And I suggested maybe these are the not the church, not Israel, but the other believers through all time, Old Testament believers, tribulation saints, millennial saints, Gentile believers who live and populate the new earth. But why would they need healing if, remember, in the eternal kingdom, there's no sickness, no death? Why would they need healing? Well, the word actually for healing here in Greek is therapeion, and it's which the word which we get our English word therapeutic. We've actually just transliterated the Greek into, into English here. Okay, Therapeutic doesn't mean healing, like healing from an injury or healing from a sickness. The idea of therapeutic means health-giving. It's more of a sustenance, a continued sustenance. So it's something that continues to keep us healthy or gives us life. Okay, The root of this word actually has the idea of ministering or serving. And so this fruit, in a sense, ministers to us to maintain this perfect life or to sustain this perfect life. So it's not about healing sickness. It's about life maintaining. Now, again, we talked about the nations. So is it for the church? Is it for the Gentiles, Gentile believers only? Is it for Israel too? I think it's available to everybody because everything in the eternal kingdom, everything, especially in New Jerusalem, as we're described here, is for everyone to enjoy. Whether Israel, redeemed Israel, and whether these other Gentile nations live in the city or come to worship in the city and enjoy all of these blessings, 
you know, I, we'll find out when we get there. I've told you what I believe, but it's for everybody. This is blessings available to all who are in the eternal kingdom. Now, about this life-sustaining thing, how is it going to do that? Again, I don't know, but I want you to think about this. Everything we have, again, on this earth and in our physical lives is a shadow or picture of something that is to come. What do trees do for us now? Obviously, they give us fruit, but what about the leaves? They provide oxygen, which without we would die. I don't know. Maybe God has prepared this tree of life to do something in the eternal kingdom's atmosphere that maintains or, con- or contributes to maintaining life. That's up to God. Okay? Anyway, it's a lot of interesting things to think about when you, when you look at this description. So regardless whether this tree of life is the new one or the original, whether this fruit is something we know or something new, how these leaves are going to benefit us, all of this we don't know. We know that it's going to line each side of the river. It's probably getting life giving properties from this river of life that flows out from the throne. Again, its source is not the tree. The source is not the river. The source is the God who sits on the throne. And so we have to keep going back there. So we have the river of life. We have the tree. Third, John sees here the Lord of the city. And here's the real focus in verse 3. Okay? In verse 3, he says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, in this city. Once again, John starts this verse, and he turns to what will be absent to help define what this city will be like. And he says, there'll be no more curse. Or you could say, nothing that is accursed. Okay? No more curse. In other words, nothing will exist in the new creation that contains or has been contaminated by the curse of sin. Sin cannot exist, cannot cohabitate in the presence of God. The glory of God will, will eliminate sin. You, they cannot be in the same place at the same time. And so John says there's no more curse. There's nothing that is accursed. Now, back in chapter 21, we saw the list that things that aren't going to be in this new creation, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no temple, no sun or moon, no night, and no sinners. Okay. So we take all of that out of the equation, and John here says there's not going to be any more curse. That means no more sin, or no more effects of sin, or no more contamination of sin, no more temptation to sin, no more curse. And it's not just a statement of what will not exist in heaven. It's a declaration of everything that's associated, that that, everything associated with sin has now been done away with in our final eternal home. Perfection. We talk about a holy God. When we say that God is holy, when we sing that song, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, what we're saying is that in every characteristic of God, in all of his nature, it is perfect. His love is perfect without flaw. His judgment and justice are perfect. His mercy is perfect. He cannot do any better than he already does because he is the essence, the definition of perfection. That's what this word holy means. 
Now, you understand when God says, be ye holy as I am holy, that's what he's called us to. And you go, wait a minute, I can't do that. Exactly. We can't do that. We have to let Christ do it in us. We have to let his perfection take the place of our imperfection. And so as we live in holiness, people see Jesus, not us. But God's holiness is the definition of what everything in this future life will be. And in that holiness, in that perfection, there can be no flaws, and that includes no sin. And this eternal life really focuses on one thing, and we pointed that out before. God's glory. God's glory shines through everything, and it's not just through this new creation, this new city. It's through even the people that will live there, because it's only because of God's glory and by God's glory, and for God's glory, that any of us will be there in the first place. So he says there's no curse. Everything associated with sin has been done away with. And why? He goes on, he says there's no curse because or but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. God and sin cannot coexist. And it said in verse 21, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 3, He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. God himself, in the fullness of his person, in the fullness of his deity, in the fullness of his being, will exist in cohabitation and in communion with us at that point. And if you experience and see the fullness of God here in this eternal city and in the new creation, the fullness of God's glory leaves no room for anything else. It's all about him. There's no room for anything that would obscure his glory. And that's the definition of sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. How? Because we've come short of glorifying God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 tells us as believers, what's our purpose? In everything you do, even whether you eat or drink, those minute, obscure, insignificant things just to keep you alive, even as you eat and drink, what is our purpose? To give God glory. And so when the glory of God exists in its fullness and is exhibited in its fullness here, there's no room for anything else. And so there can't be anything accursed. It's not going to be a whole bunch of glorified, saved believers enjoying heaven because they want to enjoy the pleasures for themselves. See, all the pleasures and all the blessings we're going to experience are for the purpose of giving God glory. We enjoy them because it gives God glory. And honestly, that should be our attitude now on this earth. What are the things that we enjoy as believers, as children of God? Do we enjoy things because they give God glory? They reflect his perfect character, either through our lives or in our lives. Or are the things that we enjoy part of the curse, a result of the curse? See, that shows you something about your mindset and your heart. 
Here, God's glory leaves room for nothing else. It's not about the people. In fact, it's not even about the city. It's about the glory of God, and he will sit on the throne. God himself will rule on the throne from this eternal city in the New Jerusalem. And the kings of the nations we saw last chapter will bring their own glory into it. They will bow down before God, casting their crowns at his feet, crying together with all saints. That phrase that we read in chapter 4, as we saw a glimpse of the throne room of God and those worshiping him, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's the mindset. That's the attitude of worship. I mean, even as we talk about answered prayer and we say, thank you, Lord, for doing these things in my life. Why do we say that? Because it's for our benefit? Or is it because it gives God glory? See, the eternal worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords will leave leave no entrance for fleshly lust, fleshly desires, fleshly pleasure, pleasure, any kind of anything that's associated with the curse. So sin cannot cohabitate with the Lord of glory, and if we're going to live with him forever, then we will be free from that curse that now binds us. So that's the third thing, the Lord of the city. And then fourthly, John sees the servants of the Lord, the end of verse 3, He says, and his servants shall serve him. Who are these servants? Now, some people would say, well, you know, obviously the servants in heaven are the angels, right? No, this is us. His servants will serve him. This is all believers who have been redeemed throughout all time. Anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God and has accepted him as the Messiah and Savior, those are these servants in eternity. Those are the ones who will be serving God in this new Jerusalem. And you say, well, wait a minute. What about the church being the bride of Christ? Shouldn't we not be treated then as servants? Well, let me ask you a question. If we have the proper view of marriage, what is the bride's responsibility to her groom? To serve him in love. Just like the groom will serve his bride in love. It's not about someone being exalted over the other one or someone being more important than the other. It's about serving each other. And so here, we will be serving our groom as the church. All in the kingdom, in the eternal kingdom, will be serving God. So these are are the servants. What about being the sons of God? Children, remember? We are children of God if we're saved. John 1 tells us that. And we are told by Jesus himself that we are going to be brothers with him and heirs of the, of the blessings of the kingdom. Now, I want you to remember the, the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told about the son of the father who took everything from his father, disrespected him, wasted all of what truly belonged to his father at that point because the father was still alive wasted it on himself, and then got to the point in his life where he was just so decrepit and so debauched in all of his choices, and now starving, eating pig's food and sleeping with the pigs, that he decided, 
I'm going to crawl back to my father and apologize and just ask if I can be one of his servants. See, that's the picture of salvation because we've done that to God, literally, in this life. We've rejected his authority. We've rejected his way for us. We've taken everything that God has given us as a gift in this life, and we've wasted it on ourselves. And salvation begins when we realize, I've messed up big time. I've dishonored God. I haven't given him the glory. I haven't used his gifts the way he wants me to. I've wasted the life that he gave me. And then we crawl back to him in repentance with the attitude of all I deserve is to be a servant, a slave. And that's all I'm asking. And then the father runs out and embraces him as a son, and that's God's perspective of salvation. He treats us as a son, exalted family. But our attitude has to be one of servants. Now, I'm guessing, and I don't think I'd be wrong about this, but when Jesus ended that parable, he didn't say what happened to that younger son who came back to his father But I'm pretty sure that that younger son didn't say, oh, well, you know, my father gave me all this stuff, so I'm just going to flaunt it around now. He already went through that, and he understood how wrong it was in the first place. So I think the implication was, even in that parable, that the, the second son, that younger son who came back in repentance, maintained that attitude. We are the servants. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 through 22, Paul explains this. He says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? We're always a slave. We're either a slave to sin or when we're saved, we become slaves to God. We don't have a choice in that. We're either a slave to sin or we're God's slave. Paul says that very clear. In verse 17, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became not the kings, not the honored. We became the servants of righteousness. He goes on, he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. But what fruit had ye then in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become the servants of God, You have fruit unto holiness and, in the end, everlasting life. We will never cease to be the servants of God, even in eternity. Eternity is not God going, oh, look at all these great people that I brought up here. Eternity is all of these people recognizing that they don't deserve to be there, saying, look at this great God who did what we didn't deserve. That would be giving him the glory. And so we will continue to be with him as servants. We will always be his servants, even into the eternal kingdom. Now, if you think 
Well, I don't want to stand around serving people as a slave. I don't want to serve God. I want to do stuff that I want to do. Okay, if you think that's going to be an awful way to spend eternity in heaven, then don't worry about it because you're probably not going to be there. Now, I know that sounds like a harsh statement. But Jesus said that it's only the meek, the humble, only those who have a contrite heart, only those who understand that they have nothing to offer to God. Those who come to the Father in brokenness and repentance, those who come as servants to a holy and almighty master, those are the ones that he will bring with him into his eternal kingdom. So if you don't like the idea of eternal service to God, we need to get our mindset straight. I think eternal service is not going to be hard labor. It's not going to be like a concentration camp. God is a light master. He's a good master. Jesus said, if you are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. He doesn't say you won't have to do anything. He says, for my load or my labor is light. But there's blessing in serving God. If you don't think there's blessing in serving God in eternity, then you're going to miss the blessing of serving God in this life. So we are those servants. If that's not you, you're not going to be there. That's not me. That's what Jesus said. Because nothing accursed will be there. But for those who are truly his servants, look at verse 4. He says, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their forehead. We will see his face. Now, this morning in Sunday school, we were talking about Moses before the burning bush. And when he realized it was the presence of God, he bowed his face because you cannot, he realized a human being cannot look at God, see his glory, and live. But here we will see his face. His servants will see his face, not the proud not the exalted, not the arrogant, not those who think they are something. The servants will see his face. And when we see his face, he will not turn away from us. He will not reject us or ignore us. In Bible times, when you went in to stand before a king, you didn't walk up to him and look him in the eyes. You walked up and bowed your face to the ground. And then if he accepted you, you could look up. But here... Jesus has accepted all those who are in this kingdom, and we get to see him face to face. And it says his name will be on our foreheads. That's a sign of ownership. We belong to Jesus Christ. He's marked us as his own. And those who belong to him, he will in no wise cast out. Now, if you go back to chapter 13 in Revelation, remember the Antichrist has a mark. Satan counterfeits God's mark. And he says the Antichrist is going to cause people to take a mark on their forehead or on their right hand. What is that mark? A mark of ownership. Those who get that mark belong to Satan. He owns them. That is his mark of ownership. And in the same way, this mark that we read about here of Jesus Christ is his mark of ownership. He has sealed us with his promise. We are marked by Christ that we belong to him. As a believer, we don't belong to ourselves. We're not free to live our own life and to serve ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. That's not going to change. 
those who are marked by anything else other than the ownership of Jesus Christ, Revelation 14 talks about that. He says, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. But those who are marked by Jesus Christ will rejoice in these eternal blessings forever. Now, this section concludes in verse 5. It says, there shall be no night there, they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. John repeats that there's not going to be a need for a light. No candles are necessary, not even going to need the sun, because their light, all the light we need comes from God. God is our light. Psalm 27. I read that this morning. There was a reason I read that to you. Listen to it again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He's all we need. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell, though an host should encamp against me. My heart shall not fear. The war should rise against me, and this will I be confident. Start looking at the news, or maybe don't look at the news. It's too discouraging, but start looking at the way the world is going around us. These verses start to become more and more applicable to us. When my foes rise up against me, when wars rise up around me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, not to be delivered from those wars, not to be delivered from mine enemies, but that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple that will make it to that eternal city. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore, this is why we worship him, therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy, joyful service. I will sing Yea, will sing praises to the Lord, declaring his glory. John finishes his section. He says, and they shall reign forever and ever. Servants shall reign forever and ever. Not the mighty, not the exalted. The servants shall reign forever and ever. To those who are overcomers by the strength of God, Now, when we get to the millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to appoint some of us, maybe all of us, to different places of authority in his kingdom. We may keep those positions. We may be a lord under the lord of lords. We may be appointed as a king under the king of kings. I don't know. But it says we will reign with Christ. We saw that in Revelation. So depending on how you serve your lord now, you may be given a position of great authority and power in the eternal reign of Christ. We will reign forever and ever. That's what it says. But we have to be servants first. And that position of honor that is granted to his servants in eternity will not be a temporary position. We have a president that lasts four years or eight years, and then he's done. We have other earthly rulers that may be ruled for 40 or 50 years, and then they die, and it's over. But our reign with Christ will never end forever and ever, John says. That's something we should be looking forward to. 
And so we will be servants under Christ, reigning with him forever and ever. Now, isn't that our position in a sense today? God has given us the authority and the power to be his servants in this earth, to spread the good news, to build the kingdom. What are we doing with that authority? Let me just finish with Psalm 89. Verses 15 through 18, blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness they shall be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. Are you going to be in that eternal kingdom? There's all kinds of blessings. There's all kinds of stuff that God has promised us for those who are servants. So are you that servant now that will reign with Christ forever and ever? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the promises that you've given us in your word. Lord, we don't understand a lot of these things, but you've given us enough that if we're truly seeking you, as your word tells us, that we should be excited about what's to come. Lord, your word is true. It is sure. You will never default on things that you've said. And so we know this will come to take place. And so help us to live in the light of that. Help us to live in the promises that you've given us and in the strength. But Lord, help us to remember that you've appointed us as your servants. And even our life now, as it will be in eternity, is to serve you with everything we have. That's the reason you've given us life. That's the reason you've given us everything that we owned. And every circumstance that we experience is to give you the glory that you deserve. Thank you again for your word this morning. May we not forget it as we go from this place. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with face-to-face, number 500.